All right, well, thanks, Jordan. Hey, guys, good morning. Boy, aren't kids awesome? Kids are the best, man. They're so, so good. It is such a privilege and a joy for us as a church to, to see, not only to see people respond to the gospel, but especially the next generation, right? These are the, these are the next people who are going to be leading the church in, in 20 years. It's incredible uh, what God is up to. And so we're so excited uh, that you guys are here joining us uh, this morning. Uh, you might remember uh, that uh, we just came out of a series. Uh, we're in a new series called Risking Church, but uh, we just came out of a Jonah series. And I don't know if you guys heard this. Uh, but just in the last couple days or a week, as you heard this, there's a guy, a uh, Cape Cod guy, who was swallowed by a humpback whale. So super bizarre. He was in there for about a minute, and uh, it just is weird. It just brings the whole story to life a little bit, right? So kind of coming off of the wake, wake of that, it's just it's, it's funny. Glad he's okay, just so you know, he's all, he's fine, he's good, and everybody's Everybody's fine. So, hey, we are in this new series called Risking Church. Uh, and as we look at this guy uh, on the side of a mountain, I feel like it bears worth noting, which, by the way, Jordan told me to, to, um, to say this is not me, because <laughs> he said it kind of looks like me. This is not me. Um, but uh, when you look at this, it, it becomes pretty clear, I think, for most of us, uh, that uh, the different people have different ideas of the word safe, right? Because when you think about risking church, what's the opposite of a risk? Something that is safe, right? And so we look at this and we go, man, that's, it sure seems like a risk. He has a different version or idea of what it means to be safe. This is not really a safe environment. Some of us would go, this is crazy. I would never, ever, ever do this. And so for me, um, I have always been afraid of heights, always. Um, but uh, when we lived in Colorado, uh, it was the thing to do was to become a rock climber. So I tried, and I bought all the stuff, and I did very poorly. <laughs> but I have a bag full of rock climbing things. And so um, when it comes to safety, um, here's a few items that you will need. Okay, so the first one uh, is just a bag of chalk. Okay, and so this is filled with chalk, and so when you're climbing, your hands get sweaty and slippery. Like, the last thing you want is for your hands to slip off of the wall, right? Because that's part of what's keeping you from falling. Um, and so you dip your hands in chalk, and, um, and then you dry off your hands, and you, and you can kind of keep climbing. So that's the first thing. Uh, you'll also want a pair of shoes. These are not tennis shoes. Uh, they are rather uncomfortable, <laughs> Um, they fit very tightly on your foot, but they are designed with these little wedges, and so it allows your feet to get into cracks uh, that, that tennis shoes can't, and so they don't slip and slide, and so these are very important for safety uh, when you're climbing. Uh, you'll also want uh, a carabiner, and uh, this is not a carabiner that you would buy at like Walmart, like you go and some places just hand out carabiners. Don't ever use those, okay? <laughs> if you're trusting your life uh, please use a certified uh, carabiner. And these are important because uh, they're heavy duty, they carry a certain amount of weight, uh, and they have these special locking mechanisms on the front. And so that way, when you lock it, uh, it prevents the rope from ever slipping out of this carabiner, right? And it won't break, and if it broke, that would be very embarrassing right now. Um, you would also need, and this is probably one of the most important pieces that you would need, and this is called a harness. And this is everything that's good. I would put this on, but it, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do that. Um, 
so you, you put this on and every single like, piece on this needs to be cinched very tight because you don't want anything loose. And you want to be able to just barely kind of turn your fingers um, in these things. And so you'd put this on and make sure it's very tight. And when you pull these things out, though, you should always, 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 always be inspecting the condition of your products, right? Um, checking the stitching, making sure things aren't coming out, any of those types of things, like that would be bad. So you wanna do that. And then the last thing that you'll need um, is you'll need a rope. This is a, you know, kind of a cool thing here, right? So, um, by the way, this is super embarrassing, and I'm just gonna tell you this for the sake of being vulnerable and transparent and authentic uh, and humble. Um, I bought this when we were in Colorado and I've never used it. <laughs> But here's what you do. <laughs> um, you're going to take a piece of rope, um, and uh, you always, obviously, always want to inspect the rope, make sure it's in good quality. Uh, there's no frays or anything. As soon as there's frays, you want to toss it, and you're done with it, right? Because then it's unsafe, right? And we're talking about safety here. So you want to make sure that when you're tying these things, you take a full arm length, kind of bring it down here. You pinch the top. And you want to tie a really good knot because you don't want to tie a junky knot because, again, your life is at stake when you're on the mountain. So take this, loop this around the top, go back through the middle, and what I should have is a nice figure eight rope right here. Nice figure eight rope, okay? That does not look right, actually. I think I did that wrong. <laughs> Let's try that again, okay? Here, do this, do this. Do this, that's more like it. That's a figure eight. See, that's a big deal, so you don't want to do this wrong. Um, and then what you do is you take your harness and um, when, you're, when you're climbing, and some people like to put the rope just through the top part bracket, but I like to do it through both the bottom and the top, and here's why, because it's, it's safe. Right? It's more safe, and so you put this through. And then how you tie this knot is that you basically just trace this back through all the way around and you follow exactly the pattern as before and voila, you have a nice knot, right? There you go. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But here's the question, would you trust this if you were that guy? It's a different, it's a different question. It's a different question. You look at this and you go, wow, that looks right. I count two, 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 two. Yep, I did it right. And yeah, I have, I have worn this equipment enough. I have worn this equipment enough to know uh, that this will trust me, that, that, that this will all hold me. And yet, every single time I put this stuff on, do you know what I'm thinking? Will it hold me? Can I trust the equipment? Can I trust it? Right? That's what I'm thinking every single time uh, I put it on. In fact, I remember uh, one time climbing uh, in, in Buena Vista, which is just outside uh, in, in Colorado, kind of in, the, in the, the wilderness area, and we went and we took these people and we were rock climbing, and I climbed up the wall just fine, and then I got over to the side, uh, which was the rappelling portion, which is where you inch your way off of the back. Um, but it wasn't just a wall, it was a cliff. And so as I peeked over the edge, all I see is just emptiness. And twice I refused to go. I just couldn't do it. Because as much as I looked at my stuff, I thought, I know this is, I, I know I can trust it, but can I? Can I? And then I look at the people who are helping me, and I go, I can trust them, but can I? 
right? Like, it's, it's, it's scary, and it's, and it's dangerous, and it, so it feels like a risk. And so here's this very important, fundamental question that I want to pose to you this morning. When you think about rock climbing, and I promise we'll make this spiritual later, okay? But when you think about rock climbing, do I trust the equipment, and do I trust the people who are helping me? Do I trust the equipment and do I trust the people who are helping me? And it feels like a risk. And so here's what we're going to do. We're all going to go to the top of the building. <laughs> and then we're all going to rappel off the side. Sound good? No. Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, let's do it. By the way, how many of you, not that we would ever, ever do this, but how many of you would actually do that? Wow, quite a few. How <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Very impressed. This is awesome. Let's try this next week. Let's cancel. Cancel everything. We're repelling. How, what do you guys do at church? We repel. It's awesome. It's a, it's a yeah. I'll go first. All right. Cool. Thanks, Austin. Right. right. So we want, to trust, we want to trust the knot. See if Seth tied the knot right. Right. So um, you might remember this last week, we looked at this verse, Hebrews 10, uh, 23 to 25. And it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember the guy who started the story, God, the main character in the story, is faithful and he will finish the story. And let us consider, right, in the meantime, like right now, let us consider how to stir up one another, right? How do we, how do we actually kind of like push each other and provoke each other, not in a bad way, in a good way, a very positive way, to love and good deeds. Let's stir each other up. And this is not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the more that the, the like every, every hour that passes, every day that passes brings us one, class, one day closer to the end of the story. And what the author is saying is that this is a time, if, if today is today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to dig in deeper, don't go backwards. Don't withdraw, dig in deeper. And if you remember the story, we looked at this, the kind of the four parts of the story, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And when you think about those, as a result of the fall, every single one of us in this room is in a natural state of tension because there's sin and guilt in our lives. And so for us, what we want to do is that we want to withdraw into the shadows and we want to hide and cover ourselves. We don't want to be known because we're afraid of what people will say, what people will think about us. And when people see what's happening in the dark, our tendency is to go, no, no, you, me, not me, you. And we point fingers and we blame, and this is the way that we work. But as, as every moment that we withdraw into the shadows, there's this simultaneous thing happening inside of us because we are each created in the image of God who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who exists in this eternal relationship with himself because we were designed out of community and for community at every single moment, we want with all of our being to step into the light and to let go of what we're holding on to. And we want, we crave, we desire to be in relationships where we are fully known and we can be authentic in every piece of our life, not partial, but in every piece of our life where we can be vulnerable, which is in the light where we find ourselves saying, this is the real me, this is the real Seth. 
It's not the Seth you see on stage. This is the real Seth, what's going on, the mess that's in his life. And so for us, each of us, the fear is, is that when we step forward with our baggage and with our mess, our fear is that we see the people in front of us, and as we step forward, they step backwards. Because as I come into the light, my fear is that people are going to go, whoa, 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 I had no idea what was going on in your life. I'm out. I'm done. I can't deal with it. And maybe it's just because it, it, it shows how much baggage is in their own life, and so they want to hide. If you're going to be talking about that, that means I have to talk about it, and I'm not going to do that. And that's where we feel safe, is when we withdraw. And so we have this fear that people will reject us in our mess. And that same fear then gets projected on Jesus. Because as we think about Jesus, we look at him and we go, gosh, What if, I know that he would never do this, I know that I can trust him, but what if I can't? What if, when I come forward in my mess, Jesus steps back and he's like, whoa, Seth, that's bad. That's not okay. I had no idea, you're bad, you're a terrible person. That's our fear, is that Jesus, this would happen. But what we're gonna find in our story this morning is that rather, instead of Jesus taking a step back from us and going like, oh man, that's gross, he will actually be the one who steps in and close to us. So if you've got a Bible, open up your Bible to John chapter 21. I have preached on this about a year ago, but I figured that this is still good for us to come back to. So if you remember some of it, it's a little familiar, you'll notice why. But we're in John chapter 21. If you don't know where to find that in your Bibles, uh, you can look at the index in the front. Otherwise, the Bible is in two parts, old and new. You flip about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, uh, and you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John So we're in John chapter 21. So as you guys are turning there, um, I just want to kind of recap the story for us because when Jesus enters into the scene, uh, he befriends this guy named Peter. Uh, And Peter and him, just to oversimplify things, Peter, who is a fisherman, Peter and Jesus become very, very, very close friends. In fact, they, they basically live together for three years. For three years, they live together. Check out these pictures, actually. I think we have some pictures uh, of Peter. So um, this is just uh, on the northwest corner of the side of the Sea of Galilee uh, in the old, these are the actual ruins of the town of Capernaum, or uh, Capernaum, however you want to pronounce it. And so you might see the sea in the back, but then there's this kind of weird spaceship structure over uh, this this other piece. And this is actually just a building uh, that covers and protects what has been uh, laid or identified as Peter's home. And Peter would have most likely hosted Jesus. Capernaum was their hometown of operations. And so Jesus most likely would have lived with Peter in his home. And so you get this glimpse of the living style, the close quarter contact that Jesus and Peter would have had. Isn't this crazy? It's likely, plausible, that this is where Jesus lived when they were in Capernaum. And so Jesus and Peter would have become very, very, very close friends, very close friends. But as they get to the end of Jesus' ministry, as Jesus knows that he is going to be betrayed, and he's going to be tried, and he's going to be crucified, and so he tells his disciples many times, this is what's going to happen. And in fact, he tells to Peter, he says, even you, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter is like, no 
way would I... Jesus, we've lived together for three years. We've done life together for three years. Do you think that I would ever, ever betray you? There's no way I would ever do that. Never. You're my closest friend. I would never betray you. I'd never deny you. Ever. And so the time comes, and Jesus is arrested, and, and, uh, and Peter, I think in this moment, his enthusiasm to show Jesus how much he loves him, takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of a servant. And, and <laughs> if you're in that moment, you're like, Peter, what are you doing? Like, what, about, what over the last three years, you've lived with Jesus for three years, what about Jesus' ministry would ever say, I'm okay with this? Right? And so Jesus would be like, Peter, let's put it away. This is not how grown-ups act. <laughs> this is not how adults work. And so put the sword away. And so he is arrested. And he goes in and he's tried. And in the meantime, Peter, because it's cold outside, goes to a fire. And he wants to be warmed by this fire. And as he's being warmed by the fire, a little girl comes to him and looks at him. And she's like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? No. No way. I am. I don't know him. Jesus and I are not friends. And then two more times, it happens with other people. No way. I'm not friends with Jesus, right? And then the rooster crows, and Peter knows that he has done the very thing that he said he would never, ever, ever do to his closest friend in all of the world. And his Lord, by the way, his Savior, I would never do that, and this is what he did. And it's in that space, as Peter is wrestling with the guilt and the shame, Jesus is hung on a cross and crucified and dies and, and lays in a grave beyond reach. And so Peter has got to be thinking about all of the things in his life that, man, I wish I wouldn't have said this, I would have said that. Like, like all of a sudden, Peter in this moment is like, oh, he's like, oh, back in the shadows, all this mess, this grossness, this hard, hard stuff in my life. He's got to be feeling these types of things. But then miraculously, Jesus is raised from the dead. Everything's back to normal, except that Jesus and Peter still haven't had a conversation about what happened. They still haven't talked. In fact, Jesus appears to the disciples twice, and they still don't have a conversation. And it's in our text this morning when Jesus finally addresses Peter on the failure in his life. And they're going to talk about the mess in John 21, verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the same as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, uh, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, uh, and two other disciples were together. And we don't even know who the rest of them were. They're just there. They're hanging out together. Uh, and Simon Peter, verse 3, get this. I laugh every time I see this. And maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. But here we go. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> I'm going fishing. And because when Jesus isn't around, Peter is in charge, what does everybody else do? We will go with you. And so we don't know exactly why Peter does this. Maybe Peter is bored, right? Maybe he's bored. He has nothing to do. So he's like, I'm just going to go back and fish. Maybe he, has, um, he needs to make money. So maybe he needs to provide for his family because he's no longer following Jesus and living off of the surplus of that ministry. And so maybe he needs to provide for his family. But we don't know. But here's what we do know, is that Peter went back to an old way of living. 
He went back to what was familiar and habitual and normal for him, which, by the way, was not in alignment with who Jesus wanted him to be. And so Jesus is going to enter into this mess with Peter, with the disciples. Okay, I just want you to see this, this next picture, okay? Um, this next picture, I think, is right, just right down the shore of the restaurant where we ate in Capernaum. And you can see, right, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias kind of flowing out behind it. And I just picture this, this is where the, the, the disciples would have been fishing, and they're out in the boat, and Jesus comes, and he finds them, and he sees this boat, and I'm just going to summarize. He finds and sees the boat in the distance, and he yells at these people, and he says, have you caught any fish? And he's so far away, they don't know who it is, and they're like, no, we haven't. Shocker. <laughs> this is the story. Does this sound familiar? And what happens? The random guy on the shore says, try throwing your nets out the right side of the boat, and there you will find some. So what do they do? They throw it out because I guess you just take everybody's opinion when you're fishing and you catch nothing. Yeah. Try the green one. <laughs> you know? Try the size five. Okay. And what do they do? They catch this massive load of fish. And you're like, okay, all of a sudden things start clicking. And one of the disciples in the boat is like, oh my goodness. Duh. <laughs> it's Jesus. Right? That's who this is. And as soon as Peter finds out, as soon as it clicks in Peter's mind, what does he do? He puts on his cloak and he dives into the water. He throws himself into the water. He doesn't wait for everybody else. He doesn't care about the fish. There's something that's going on in Peter's heart. He is so ready to be in right relationship with Jesus that he can't even wait for the boat. And he dives in, and he swims, and swims, and swims, and swims, and he gets to Jesus. Eventually, everybody else gets to Jesus, and Jesus has this little fire, and so, right, there's another fire, so the symbolism, I don't know, right, there's another fire here, and they all have breakfast, and, and I just picture the gang being back together. woo rock on, Jesus, you're awesome. This is the way that it's supposed to be. It's like coming out of COVID. Everybody's giving hugs. Jesus is here. I've seen you. You were dead. That's weird. Now you're alive. Right? And we're together. And this is the way that it is supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. But then, but there's still very much this elephant in the room. Because Jesus and Peter still have not had a conversation about the mess that happened in Peter's life. Chapter 21, verse 15. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And here's what I picture. We don't know if Jesus says this in front of everybody, of all of the disciples, or if he kind of pulls them aside. But here's what I picture. They're kind of on the fringe, and, and Jesus asks Peter this question, and people are like cheering, like big, ah, this fish is so... Oh. Silence. Oof. What's Peter going to say? What's he going to do? There's this awkward silence I think I picture in my head. Right? 
because Peter still has not owned up to the mess that is in his life. And just saying, do you love me? And so whether Peter stammers through it or says it confidently, we don't know. But he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Verse 16 goes right into it again. How much time has passed? We have no idea. But he says, verse 16, and he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Here's what's interesting about this. Is if you look at that top word, um, the first word love there in that purple, bluish. You see, when Jesus says, do you love me? He uses the word in Greek called, that's it's, it's agape. And oftentimes that's referred to as God's like, like God love, like his deep, unconditional um, chesed in Hebrew love. Um, where Peter, when he says, I love you, he uses the word phileo, which is oftentimes referred to as a brotherly love. And so it, it sometimes looks like there's a difference here. Now, I think we want to be careful. I, I, I point this out for a reason. I, I want to say this. I don't think um, that, we, that we want to read too much into the different words, agape and phileo, because, because John, as an author, uses them interchangeably. And one means the other, the other means the other. So they really are the same thing. But we would be neglectful to miss the pattern because I think that what John is doing as an author is showing us that Jesus and Peter are on different pages. Jesus is saying, I love you. And Peter's like, "Eh, do you? Do I love you? I think I do. You know that I do. I'm confused. Right? Because there's all this stuff, all this baggage in his life. And so when Jesus says, do you love me more than these, there are three different options. These what? Do you love me more than the fish and the fishing style? And that makes sense because Peter had like, left Jesus and gone back to his old lifestyle. So do you love me more than that? Is, is what I want you to do more important than this? Or do you love me more than you love these, these guys over here, this brotherhood, you know? Do you, do you love me more than them? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. The most likely candidate is that Jesus, when he looks at Peter, he asks, he says this question. He says, do you, Peter, love me more than they love me? Now, that's why I think that there's an awkward silence, because if that's the way that it is, if you're one of the disciples listening, you're like, hey, I love you too, <laughs> Right? Do you love me more than they do? Do you love me more than they do? And Peter's response is, yes, Lord, you know that I do, right? You see, see, for Peter, it's in this moment where, where he has this tension. He wants to keep going back into the shadow, and yet the love of Jesus is calling him forward. And it's like this little dance, you know, back forwards, because there's all this stuff, and it's almost like Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but there's all of this stuff in my heart, and I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with all this mess, this guilt, and this shame that's inside of me, and this is what I love about Jesus, because this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to enter into the mess while Peter's like oscillating back and forth, like trying to figure this out. Jesus is like, hey, just don't move. Let me come to you. And I will step into the mess. Check this out in verse 17. And he said to him a third time, which by the way, if you're counting, one, two, three, it's the same times that Peter denied Jesus. And it's like, gosh, like Jesus, like you keep reminding me over and over and over. Well, that's kind of the point. But it's, it's, it's a loving point. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But here's what I want you to see. The word that Jesus uses this time is the same as Peter's. I phileo, do you phileo me? And so Jesus is like, Peter, I'm gonna step into this mess and I'm gonna meet you right where you are. I'm gonna meet you right where you are in all of your mess. I'm not backing away, I'm not holding you at arm's length, I'm entering into the mess and I'm inviting you into a community of grace. That's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting him into a community of grace and it's like Peter in this moment has an aha moment because here's what he's grieved, obviously, because this is painful. He says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? But then here's Peter's response. Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. You see, Peter, in this final moment, he looks at Jesus, and it's like, yeah, I finally get it. I know who you are, and I know who I am, and I understand what you've done for me in your death and your resurrection. Yes, Lord, you know that I have loved you. You see, Jesus invites Peter into a community of grace and it allows him to live with freedom, to leave the shame and the guilt and all that stuff behind, right? And that's what he invites him into. And I love this phrase, community of grace, because here's what a community of grace is, I think. A community of grace says two fundamental things. It says, I know you and I am for you. I know you completely, and I am for you no matter what. I love this verse in, in Exodus, or excuse me, not Exodus, Ezekiel 36, right? Because if we look back into the story, we're reminded creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and throughout all of the Old Testament, they're waiting for something major to happen. And here's what God says through the prophet Ezekiel back in the Old Testament. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all of the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. Next one, right? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, this is the identity that has been accomplished. Jesus says, in light of my death and resurrection, I have given you a new heart. And this is how he is able to see Peter in this moment. He doesn't see him as a failure. He sees him in light of Jesus' own success and what he's accomplished on the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this too, right? Um, it says that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. This is your identity. This is the way that God sees you. And when we walk into church, just to get real for a second, when we walk into church, church needs to be a safe place where we know that in light of who we are, we are accepted because of who Christ is. It's a safe place. And yet, every single person in this room, I would venture, walks through these doors and thinks these questions. What if, people knew that I was struggling in my marriage? What if people knew that I was struggling with my finances? What if people knew I was struggling with pornography? 
What if people knew that I was struggling with depression and anxiety and anger or eating disorders? Maybe I struggle with same gender attraction. What if people knew that? How would they respond? That's the question that we ask. And by the way, uh, as a pastor, I'm a shepherd, but I'm a sheep too. And so when I enter these doors, sometimes I wonder, how will people respond if they know that like, the Seth up here isn't always the Seth in real life, that I have these deep, internal, difficult challenges and struggles in life? What will people think if they find out about those things? You see, we long, each and every one of us longs to be fully known, and we don't tell people because it's safer for us to hide in the shadows. But when we hide in the shadows, what it does is that it cultivates shame and guilt, and then shame and guilt become drivers in my life, which leads to more sin, which leads to more shame and guilt, which leads to more sin. And I sit in this circle, and I begin to wither, but I'm okay with it because I'm safe, because nobody knows. And it feels like a risk to enter into the world. But when we do, we open ourselves up to grace in the way that we need it most. And it's when we experience grace both with, from God and from others that all of a sudden we begin to live with freedom and joy in life because we've experienced grace. I want to end by coming back to... Um, coming back to the rock climbing thing, okay? So let's just imagine that you, that you go into a rock climbing gym or whoever, somebody's taking you rock climbing and, and, uh, and they say, hey, don't worry, it's not a risk, you're safe with us. Okay, cool. But when you walk in, you see ropes that are frayed, you see stitching that's falling apart, you see the fake cheap Walmart uh, like carabiners, not the locking ones. All of a sudden, you look around you and it doesn't matter if they say this is safe all of a sudden you realize that environments speak more powerfully than words. Do you hear me? And I would not feel safe if I walked in and I saw that. Let's take that and let's transfer it to the church. We can talk about grace all that we want. We can talk about it eloquently, we can talk about forgiveness over and over and over again, but if our culture is cynical and blaming and judgy, in other words, when sermon truth and environmental truth are in conflict, which one do you think will win? The environment will win every single time. We want to be a community of grace. And so all of a sudden we begin to see that grace is not just a theological truth, even though it is, but grace is also a community and a relationship that we enter because that's who God is in his own eternal relationship with himself as a God of grace. And so when I think about our church, we will either be shaped by grace or unshaped by ungrace. And I want us to be a community of grace where we live in the freedom of being fully known rather than in the fear of being fully known. Because sometimes I feel like we enter into the shadows and we will talk eloquently as much as we can about grace and forgiveness, but we do it from the shadows and we don't do it in the light of stepping out and trusting God with my sin and trusting others with the mess in my life. And so when I think about this, here's what I think about. We need to trust the equipment and we need to trust the people that are helping us. And the same thing is true in the church. We need to trust the gospel and that this is who God says I am 
not who others say I am. I trust who God says I am in light of Jesus, and I need to be able to trust the people in my environment, the people who are helping me. And the most fundamental truth in all of that is the word humility. We need desperately humility. I want to end with um, this picture. Um, This is a picture of, you know, kind of a part. It's a cog. So I'm just pulling out my inner Kent here for a moment, okay, uh, with an acrostic. So when I think of a community of grace, C-O-G, uh, spells cog. And a cog is a piece in, in a system that helps the other system work, right? And it moves and moves and moves. And I go, let's be a community of grace. That's who we want to be. We want to be people who integrate together. And that, like in doing so, it just it makes everything work and everything go, which is very different than a clog, C-L-O-G, which I don't have an acrostic for, but here's my challenge. Let's learn to be a a cog, not a clog. That's funny, right? That's funny. Be a cog, not a clog. I want to invite Nicole up here, and she's going to sing these final two songs, but uh, uh, I want to end with this Cave Table Road. First question, very simple. Key, Key characteristic for each of us, am I humble? Talk to God about it. Am I humble? Am I willing to admit my weaknesses? Am I willing to admit my wrongs? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. First Peter 5, 5. Table, love this. Am I a part of a cog or a clog? When I think about the people that I'm around, are we clogging the system or are we becoming a community of grace and integrating and making this thing work? And the last one, the road. Am I seeking out opportunities to show others grace let's pray father thank you for uh this morning what i do just pray uh that uh, we would be a community we'd be coming a community of grace that we're fostering coming out of covid knowing that as the day draws near we are not a people who are shrinking back or falling away that we give up meeting together but that we enter in with resurgence community and relationships and we we long as people to be fully known and fully loved and that knowing that even though it's a risk it's it's worth the risk because we will get and we will allow ourselves to experience grace the way that we need it most, which will actually cause us to flourish far more than we ever could if we hide in the shadows. And so, Father, may we become a community of grace. May we, like Peter, as we see Jesus and as we think about other people, that we would enter into each other's lives and that we would, we would, we would see the sin taken care of in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, and may we be drawn closer to each other uh, in these communities of grace. In your name we pray, amen.